As I was preparing my sermon last week, and after we preached the text last week, I had this thought that the book of 1 Samuel would be a wonderful story to Netflix binge. It'd be a great story to Netflix binge. Now that's kind of become an expression. I'm not saying you have to have Netflix. But what does the expression mean? It's people who have these streaming services now have learned just how easy it is to waste all of your time watching an entire series back to back to back to back. The nice thing about preaching through a sermon series is it's kind of like the the old days of TV where when the episode was over, no matter how much you wanted to watch the next one, you had to wait until it was released. But now with streaming services, you watch the first episode and you say, okay, I'm not going to watch anymore. But then what do they do? They always end every episode with a cliffhanger. And you just have to know what comes next. So, okay, fine, we'll, I'll watch a second one. And then they end that with a cliffhanger. And I just have to know, next thing you know, you've stayed up all night long watching an entire TV series. Well, that's what happened last week. We were left with a cliffhanger. The story did not end, even though we ended. And so, do you recall where we left off last week? Last week, we left off, Saul has provoked the Philistines, and the Philistines have returned the favor by gathering around Israel this great, powerful army, sending out raiding armies throughout the land of Israel, and Saul offered this unlawful sacrifice, and Samuel was upset with it because God was upset with it, so Samuel left, and then that's basically where we ended the story. So we have to ask the question, what happens to Israel? Like The last place we left off, they were surrounded, they were outnumbered, and they were outgunned, and then we just dropped off the story. Well, thankfully, 1 Samuel 14 tells us what happens to Israel. Would you please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 14? First Samuel chapter 14, we will read verses 1 through 23 today. If you would please follow along, for these are the very words of God. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gebeah in the pomegranate cave at Migran. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitu, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sinai. The one crag rose on the north in front of Mishmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul." Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place, and will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, 
Hebrews are coming out of the hole where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gebeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priests, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. So there's the answer to our cliffhanger. God has yet again fought on behalf of his people and delivered them yet again from their enemies. Let's briefly summarize this story so we remember we just read a long portion what all happened. It began with Saul metaphorically backed up in a corner. Literally, he was what I think is most likely the more accurate translation under a pomegranate tree. The ESV says cave, but it's a tree. But there was some sort of pomegranate landmark that Saul is hiding at. And he's indecisive, and we get the indication that he has no game plan. And he's with a new priest, if you've noticed, because last week Samuel abandoned him, and for good reason. So he now has the new priest, Ahijah, and the author of 1 Samuel makes sure to tell us he's wearing an ephod, which is, means, yeah, he's the priest. And he tells us who he comes from. And does that lineage sound familiar? He's a descendant of Eli, who we discussed not long ago, whose family line was cut off and cursed. And last week, Saul's family line was cut off and cursed. So literally, the situation is we have Saul cowering among a council of rejects. It's like, you know, in high schools, you've got your jock table and your nerd table and your... This is the reject table. And they're leading the way. And so uh, Jonathan, Samuel's son, he gets tired of his father's indecision. He gets tired of his father's leadership and so he sneaks away with his armor bearer, making sure to tell no one. They don't even know that he's gone. And he goes up to a Philistine garrison. And so I mentioned last week we are seeing the sadness now. The, the reality of the sadness of Saul's lineage being cut off is before our eyes. This should be the prince of Israel. This should be the man that would take the throne of Israel one day. 
We see a young man of great courage and great faith and great ability. But he will not sit on the throne of Israel. Yet, nonetheless, he takes his trusty armor bearer and they go to a Philistine garrison and they look up and it's difficult to get to. They're on a, a, a plateau about the size of a football field and the only way up is to rock climb. And so you look at this situation and it seems like really, really bad warfare policy. They're outnumbered, they're outgunned, and that's even the best case scenario. That's assuming they can rock climb and get up to the top with a modicum of strength and no, no injuries. Most likely they don't make it to the top, but if they do make it to the top, they're tired, they're weary, they're probably already hurt, and now they're about to fight, outgunned and outnumbered. But Jonathan believes God can give them a victory. And he creates this test to make sure that he knows God will give us a victory. And he says, we will halfway present ourselves to the Philistines. And if they tell us to come to them, then we will take that as a sign from God that he will give us this victory. And so they do that. They show themselves and the Philistines say, come up and we'll show you something. We've got something for you if you're brave enough to come up here. And so Jonathan says, green light. It's a go time. Now, let me take a break in our summary and just say this. Whenever we read the Old Testament, there's always a, an important principle in what we call hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the study of interpreting the Bible. When, you, when your eyes hit the page and you read the words, how do you interpret it? Hermeneutics guide your interpretive principle. And one of the basics of hermeneutics is being very careful not to confuse a descriptive text with a prescriptive text. What do we mean by that? Well, what's a prescription, right? Your doctor gives you a prescription. A prescription, something you are prescribed, that's a direct commandment for you to do something. Take this. Take this three times a day. It's a prescription. So when we read a text where it says something like, you shall do this, you shall not do this, those are prescriptive texts. That's God telling us what to do, God telling us what not to do. But then there are descriptive texts. A descriptive text is merely describing a historical event. It's not telling us that everything there is what we should be doing, right? If you were to pick up a history textbook and read about World War II, it wouldn't make any sense to say, oh, Hitler killed millions and millions of Jewish people. I guess the author wants me to kill millions and millions of Jewish people. No, he's not telling you to do it. He's not saying it's good or bad. He's just telling you what happened. So we have to be very careful when we read a narrative where events are merely being described. It takes a lot of work to know what here is God telling us to do. And here's why I say all that. Because it might be a temptation of yours to say, well, look, Jonathan created this test for God and it made his life really easy. If this happens, then God wants me to do it. So I'm going to start living my life that way. I don't know which restaurant to go to. If the light turns green right before I get there, then that means I go to this restaurant, stuff like that. I would encourage you not to live your life that way. This is a descriptive text, not a prescriptive text. Now, why do I caution you against it? Well, number one, narratives only give us the information that the author found really, really important. We don't know where this test came from. Did God reveal this test to Jonathan, and the, the, the narrator just left that out? Did God say, here, this will happen? I, I don't suspect that that's what happened, but it's possible. 
right? Was this revelation, did Jonathan just make it up on the spot? Did he have some precedent for doing that? We don't really know. As a matter of fact, you can't even deduce that because God honored it, he was proud of it. There are many times in our lives where we do the wrong thing and God still blesses us. It happens all the time. It happens corporately. It happens individually. So here's the fact of the case. Jonathan, yes, he created this test for God and it worked. But we don't know that God was honored by it. We don't know that God gave it to him. We don't know that God was pleased by it. And then more importantly than that, when we look at the New Testament, we never see this being prescribed by us. The apostles don't teach us to do this. Churches don't do this. So I would not live your life making decisions based on these kind of arbitrary signs that you've created. Just keep in mind that Jonathan was in a day and age with a different covenant, far less revelation than we have. We are not Jonathan. We live in a very different time in God's administration of salvation. So just be careful of making Jonathan too much your standard. Emulate his faith and his courage, but not his test. But nevertheless, he creates this test. They fight and they win. But not only that, after this victory, this miniature victory among the garrison, God then works even more miraculously, brings about this incredible panic and chaos and confusion. And we don't even really know what that means or what that looks like. We've seen it before. This is, God has defeated the Philistines the exact same way before in 1 Samuel already. And so God has turned their many numbers and their, their advanced uh, warfare weaponry and he's made it completely useless because they're panicked and they're afraid and their earth is trembling. There's so much confusion and panic among the Philistines that they're killing each other. They're fighting each other. Their sword turned against each other. So God is bringing about this sweeping victory miraculously to Israel and Saul and the rest of the army sees it. They say, what is going on? So Saul says, who, who, who started this? Who's not here? And it's his son. So he tells the priest, well, I, okay, bring the Ark of the Covenant. Like we need to take the Ark down. We need to hear from God. And Saul gets impatient. It's not working. So he cancels that and the army charges in. And they continue to win. God continues to grant them victory. So much victory that those who we read last week had cowered and hidden in the caves, came out of their holes to fight. And there was even a group of betrayers, people who had turned against Israel and started fighting with the enemy, and they turned back their allegiance. So God has not only given them military victory, but he has reunified them. God granted Israel an incredible Victory, when we saw last week from a human perspective, this victory was impossible. But God gave them a miraculous victory. Now, I want us to, now that we understand what happened, we understand the narrative, I want us to dive into this comparison that we have here between Jonathan and his father. What's the difference? Like, what's, what's the difference between the two men? Why is the one up in the pomegranate tree or by the cave, wherever he's at, and the other one is taking action and fighting and winning? Well, I think the key to this, the key to Jonathan's courage and his faith is shown to us specifically in verse 6. Would you read verse 6 with me again? Verse 6 is really the key to the entire narrative we've read today. It is what glues it together. This is where Jonathan gives us the theological insight over the narrative. And notice what he says in verse 6. 
Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. I want us to stop there. He changed his vocabulary from what the narrative was reading. The narrative described them as the Philistines. A Philistine garrison. And Jonathan has gone over to the Philistines, but once they are on the precipice of battle, he does not refer to them as the Philistines. He refers to them as what? The uncircumcised. Now, why is that important? What Jonathan has just done is he's flicked on his spiritual goggles. He has refused to look at the circumstances from a carnal, worldly perspective, which is what we had been doing. The narrative had been leading us in that carnal perspective. And from a carnal perspective, Israel's in big trouble. Because the nation that they are trying to fight has better weapons and far more men. From a carnal perspective, Israel's the underdogs, the big time underdogs. But what Jonathan does at this moment is he says, I'm not going to interpret my circumstances through a carnal perspective. And he puts on his covenantal glasses. He puts on his spiritual glasses and he sees the fight for what it really is. You see, this is not really a fight between Israel and Philistia. This is not a fight between an army of 600 versus an army of thousands. This is a fight between the covenant people of God and the enemies of God. Because what was circumcision to them? Circumcision was their sign and seal of the righteousness that they had by being in union with Yahweh through the covenant given through Abraham and through Moses. Circumcision was their sign that I belong to God. He is my covenant God. I belong to Him. He is my God. I love Him. I belong to Him. And so when Jonathan refers to these people as the uncircumcised, he's no longer thinking of them as Philistines versus Amorites. It has nothing to do with the fact that they're this nation versus... He is seeing them as the enemies of God. These are the people who are outside God's covenant. And so what does that allow him to do? That allows him to see that, again, this is not Israel versus Philistia. This is Yahweh versus Dagon. This is Yahweh versus Philistia. The friends of God versus the enemies of God. And that perspective gives him the courage that Saul is lacking. Because he knows now who's the true underdog here. The Philistines. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's what he's saying. And we know that because that's almost exactly what he does say. Look at the rest of verse 6. After they go up, not to the Philistines technically, but to the uncircumcised. He says then, it may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. If you're looking for a thesis, if you're looking for a big idea, this is it. Right, if, if you walk out of here and someone asks you, what did, what did you learn in church today? What was the sermon about today? This is it. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. What did we learn from Jonathan? What did we learn from the narrative? Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. And as I say that, every reformed father of the faith is cheering in his grave right now. This is the message of the Reformation. This is the message of Reformed theology. The heart and soul of Reformed theology boils down to this. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. He will save. 
You can't stop him. Nothing can hinder the Lord. Jonathan says, by many or by few. What's he mean? Jonathan's saying, it doesn't matter if we have a small army or a great. God can win with both. It doesn't matter that we're outnumbered 20 to 2 on this hill. It doesn't matter that we're outnumbered 50 to 1 in the larger battlefield. God can save with a small amount. He can save with a large amount. God can save however he wants, whenever he wants, and nothing can stop him from saving. It was the power of God, the sovereignty of God, that gave Jonathan this great courage to say, we're going to go up there and we're going to take that hill. Yes, we're outnumbered. Yes, we're outgunned. We're going to take it. Because nothing can hinder God from saving. And so I want us to notice also that Jonathan is not contradicting himself, but he's working with two different paradigms as he says this. He has both a micro and a macro paradigm in view. What do I mean by that? Well, when he speaks of victory, he's speaking for both himself personally, but also simultaneously for all of Israel. His point is that I can go up there and win this fight because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. And that is a proof that we can go into this fight and nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. When he says nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, he's talking about both his personal battle and Israel's corporate battle. And this is exactly how I want us to apply this principle today. We need to remember that the people of God, both corporately and on an individual level, are capable of being saved by the power of God. We start with the corporate. This is exactly what Jesus meant in the book of Matthew when he gave us that great promise. That on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is God's promise to save his people. And nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Not even the gates of hell. We have been given a corporate promise that the corporate church will be protected, preserved, and saved. And this is important because we, like Israel in this text, I would imagine, if you look at our situation right now from a carnal perspective, there's a lot to, to fear. There are 7 billion people in the world today. And estimates would say that 2 billion of them claim to be Christians. Now we know that that 2 billion number, it includes a lot of groups that we would not consider to be true, authentic, gospel-believing churches. So the number is much smaller than 2 billion. And even if we narrow it to just the, 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 the denominations and the churches that we believe hold the gospel, there are many people who would sign a paper saying, I believe that, we know don't really believe that. So then the number gets even smaller. So let me tell you something about the church of God on earth. We are outnumbered big time. Big time. It's not looking good. And I would argue from a carnal perspective, we're outgunned. What resources does the church have? What do we own? Are there any governments in the world that are shining examples of faithful Christian governments? I don't think there is. What does the church own? What weapons do we have? We've got a Bible. It is unbelievers who are running the world right now. The largest private industries in the world, the government agencies, however you look at, whoever it is that you think has a lot of control, it's usually not Christians. 
We are outnumbered and we are outgunned. So what do we need to do? Take off your carnal glasses and put your covenant ones on. Stop looking at the situation through the newspaper. Stop reading the world through Fox or CNN or whatever you listen to. Read the world with Scripture as your lenses. And when we put our covenant glasses on, we see the promise we have been given from an almighty, all-powerful God that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. And we realize it's the world who's the underdog, not us. We have the Word of God. We have the Spirit of God. We have spiritual weapons so that no weapon formed against us can prevail. They're the underdogs. They're the ones who should be shaking in their boots because the church of God is marching on. Why? Because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. No one can stop His church. No one can stop the advancement of the gospel because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving us. Now, this though, if we're, if we're going to, before we get too triumphant, before we get too excited about the advance of the gospel and the kingdom of God in the world, let me remind us that we have to apply this gospel principle the same way Jonathan applied it. Jonathan knew God can save. Jonathan knew God can give me victory. He can give us victory. So what did he do? Did he just sit on the other side of the crags and say, let's wait? Nothing can stop God from saving, so we don't even need to fight. Let's just sit back and wait for all of the uncircumcised to die of a heart attack. God's going to rain down fire and brimstone. He's gonna, we don't need to do anything. Armor bearer, just be patient. Just, just wait. No, that's not how he applies the principle. He says, God can save. Nothing can stop God, so let's go fight. Jonathan is recognizing that while God does have the power to work around us, God usually and preferably works through us. So, can anyone stop the church? No, absolutely not. So what does that mean? Do we just sit around? I don't need to preach the gospel. God is the one who saves, not me. I don't need to try to reach my neighbor with the gospel. God's the sovereign one, not me. I don't have to care about the state of the world. I don't have to do anything to help my community or help my neighbor. God is the one who's in control. So just sit back and let God do things. That's not how Jonathan applied the power of God. That's not how Jonathan applied the sovereignty of God. He said God can work through us perfectly and infallibly and accomplish His purposes. So let's go fight. God can save the world. So let's go preach. God can change people's lives. So let's gather as a church. Let's help. So this is not a call to do nothing. This is not a call just to sit back. But it's a call to be more hopeful than we are. In other words, what I'm telling you is this. You do not have to be afraid of the future. You don't have to be. If you choose to be, I'll leave that to you. But you don't have to be. You have no, many, you have no idea how many people in my generation and the generation behind me who don't want to have kids. And their number one reason is because the world is just so bad. And isn't it wrong to bring children into a messed up world like this? And it's only getting worse. Why would I bring my children into a sinking boat? How selfish is that? I would say that's a very carnal way of looking at the world. I'm not afraid of the future. I'm not afraid for my children's future. Because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. 
But again, we not just have a corporate application here, we have an individual application here. Jonathan is not just talking about how God can save Israel. He believes me personally. He's, he can deliver me. And this makes sense. How could God save a corporate people? How could he protect and persevere a corporate people if he can't protect any of the individuals inside of it? A corporate body is a body of individuals. So in order for God to protect and save corporately, he has to protect and save individually. So our hope is not just that God has some ambiguous covenantal group we might, that I guess will come out on the other side of history. Our hope is that God can save people, keep them, and love them forever. And nothing can stop him. You're probably tired of hearing me talk. Let's let God talk. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. Read with me, please. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is what theologians have called the golden chain of redemption. This is an unbreakable chain of God's sovereign actions on your behalf as a believer. This is an unbreakable chain because in this chain, we are the passive recipients of God's goodness, mercy, and power. It is he who called. You didn't predestine yourself. He predestined you. You didn't justify yourself. He justified you. You didn't call yourself. He called you. You won't glorify yourself. He will glorify you. He is the actor. It is his power that is saving you. It is his choice, his power, his work. And we say this chain is unbreakable. Why? Because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. And by the way, if you think I'm being dramatic and now I'm Interpreting verse 30, that is exactly how Paul applies it. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Yeah. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us graciously all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? One of my favorite worship songs that we sing at this church we sing this phrase, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. What are we saying? Can Satan accuse you? Can Satan undo the chain? Can Satan stand before God with your laundry list of sins? Paul's answer is no, because it is not Satan who justifies. It is God who justifies. If he is for you, who can be against you? Paul is directly applying, God is the one who saves, God is the one who justifies, so you can take hope. Neither Satan nor all of hell can break this. He continues in verse 34, who is to condemn Christ? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I mean, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Christians go through horrible persecutions. Are these enough to destroy your salvation? Can Satan destroy your salvation? Can Philistia destroy your salvation? Can the enemies of the modern world destroy your salvation? Paul's answer, verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How would we summarize this? Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. One more example before we close. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. That's Paul's testimony. I want you to hear Jesus' own testimony. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 35. John chapter 6, verse 35. Look at what Jesus says to the crowd. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. If you were to ask Jesus in this moment, Jesus, why did you come? Why are you here? Why humble yourself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of sinful flesh? Why do all that? Why? According to John 6, you want to know what Jesus' answer is? Because the Father sent me to save a people. He has given me a particular people and I have showed up so that I shall lose none of them. But instead, raise them up. Jesus is promising to save and raise up all those whom the Father has given him. Jesus says, I didn't come here, I was sent here on a mission to save God's people and I will do it. I will raise them up. Nothing can hinder Jesus from saving. Our hope in salvation is not in ourselves. Our hope that Jesus can save us as individuals is not in ourselves, it's in His power. Our hope that God can save and preserve the Christian church triumphantly is not in our strength, but in God's. And so I would encourage you yet again to not be so afraid of the future. And I would also encourage you who are the people in your life that you've given up on salvation-wise? Who are the people? I know every person in this room has someone, maybe even in your immediate family, who doesn't know the Lord. And it's easy to fall into the trap. I've told them a million times, they just don't believe it. They won't. They're too far gone. You have friends, you have neighbors, I've tried. It's not happening. 
Have you lost hope? If you have, let me remind you, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Not Philistia. Not your poor evangelistic efforts. Not even their own stubborn hearts. Don't give up. Don't stop praying. Don't stop preaching. And what's your hope in that? As you look up on the hill and you see nothing but rocky crags in an impossible battle, what's your hope? Maybe God will give us victory. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Be like Jonathan. Trust in the saving power of God. And that should give you hope in your personal life, in your personal endeavors, in our life as a church, in our life as the church Catholic, a.k.a. the universal church. The church around the world. Nothing can stop from God from saving. Jesus cannot fail in his mission. He will seek and save the lost for his Father. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. <laughs>